Okay, welcome to uh, this event, a global NHS, public services across uh, borders. Uh, thank you for coming. This has been organized by Health, Poverty, Action and Global Justice uh, Now. Um, I've just been asked to read a couple of bits before we start. I think you're probably used to this if you've been to the uh, other events. So um, uh, the World Transforms is obviously excited to welcome uh, you all and there's people here uh, from different walks of life with different obviously histories, backgrounds and knowledge. So it's important that everyone feels able to contribute, um, whether it's your first political event or your hundredth, and that everyone's contributions are taken seriously. It's a, obviously a pluralist space in which we encourage comradely debate, but bigotry of any kind will be challenged. Um, so we're all here to learn both from the speakers and from each other. So we must be kind to each other as we do so. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do, first of all, really, is um, to, uh, I'll, I think I'll introduce the speakers as they uh, come up one by one, otherwise I think there'll be um, too much information to digest, probably better that way. My name's Yusuf Elgingi, so I'm a, um, a GP in uh, Tower Hamlets in East London and uh, a writer on uh, really healthcare and politics, particularly the privatisation of the NHS. Um, so I've been asked really to just uh, kick off for the first uh, few minutes just about uh, contextualizing really what's happening here in the UK before we move on to uh, the international uh, struggle and the battle uh, for universal healthcare coverage. I'm just going to find my blurb. <laughs> so um, I, I ended up writing a book really called How to Dismantle the NHS in 10 Easy Steps about charting NHS privatization since the 80s, which has been a gradual insidious process. It's hard to do it justice in about three minutes, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, I like to think of it in about four phases. So the 80s and 90s was really the first phase, which was um, uh, kind of bringing in a limited market, um, an internal market, which was dividing the NHS up into trusts, um, particularly in the 90s and um, along the lines of uh, attempt to, to use competition uh, to supposedly reduce costs and improve efficiency when in fact um, the evidence, the data we know not just from here but across the world shows the opposite, that market forces privatisation actually escalates costs, fragments services, reduces efficiency. The Department of Health knew that pretty early on actually, um, from studies they'd commissioned and then hushed up, which uh, showed that administrative costs had shot up. So that's one of the reasons, and uh, hopefully we'll touch on, on the problems with marketization and privatization, but essentially costs go up because of market mechanisms and bureaucracy, ironically, um, but also because of wealth extraction um, from uh, corporations, private companies uh, trying to maximize profits. Uh, so that was really the first stage. From about 2000 in these zeros, um, that process continued um, with um, the expansion of a limited um, market. I'm just going to do a quick timer because <laughs> otherwise I'll, uh, I'll definitely go over. Uh, I've already gone on for a minute, so there we are. Um, so that process continued really with the expansion of that limited market in the 90s into an extensive market through things I think we're all fairly familiar with now, such as which we're going to hear probably a lot more about from our fabulous panel. So public-private partnerships, um, PFI, of course, being one of those, outsourcing of uh, clinical services being expanded. Um, 
PFI, I could really go on about a long time, so I won't. I'll leave that to my uh, to, to the panel. Um, but we have been left with a PFI debt of over 300 billion uh, pounds for every man, woman, and child in the UK. That's uh, to put it into perspective is um, as opposed to the 300 million annually, which is the government's estimate for health tourism. So 300 billion, 300 million gives you an idea of um, where the real kind of um, wealth extraction and um, what's a better word for that? Well, the real uh, kind of um, um, scrounging is, is really going on. Um, it's not migrants or, um, or, or uh, health tourism. And of course, that was used to justify the, the health tourism figures, the migrant charging. Um, Simon Stevens was one of the key figures during this period under, he was um, sadly uh, advisor to Alan Milburn and later Tony Blair in Downing Street. He's now chief executive of NHS England. Um, again, I think his career, his biopic, uh, <laughs> it's not really a biopic actually, but they could turn it into a film. Um, his biography, his career arc is emblematic of uh, neoliberal deregulated capitalism. He went off to work for United Health, the biggest uh, US healthcare and insurance corporation. In fact, the biggest in the world, uh, it seems right now, and then came back to run the NHS presently. So. We'll move on from Simon Stevens. Um, the third phase, very quickly, was since 2010 under the Conservative-led coalition, we saw the Health and Social Care Act 2012, a flagship piece of legislation, which was essentially a privatisation act, and that opened up NHS contracts to potentially unlimited privatisation. We've seen the figures on that shoot up, certainly from 4 to 8%. That really doesn't do justice, I don't think, to how much privatisation is really going on, 8% of the budget, because there's all kinds of stealth and hidden privatisation in other ways. So that legislation enabled um, hospitals, for example, to make up to half their income from private patients. So it lifted the, the, the private patient income cap from 2%, pretty low, up to 49%. So if you're looking at the big centres, for example, the Royal Marsden, a world-famous cancer hospital in London, um, where I have colleagues who, who work and friends, um, and that is basically gradually changing into a two-tier system as we speak. It's not some conspiracy theory. According to a report in the Times, Royal Marsden is now making up to 45% of its income from uh, private uh, sources and non-NHS sources. So this is happening as we speak. The last uh, few seconds, I will just uh, highlight the current phase um, since 2015 with the Conservative uh, government, which has really seen the consolidation of that accelerated privatization through what is a US model of healthcare, and hopefully we'll hear, maybe we'll hear a bit more about US healthcare from Holly, um, uh, which is accountable or integrated care. And this is very cleverly sold as integration, as abolishing competition, removing the market. It's not really that at all. What it seems to mean, because it's especially being brought in without legislation uh, and rolled out as we speak, is that it has the potential for um, non-NHS, non-statutory bodies to run health and social care contracts and services for whole regions. Um, and this dovetails with things like devolution of, of health and social care. So it's very concerning. And sadly, there's been a lot of fantastic PR and spin and rhetoric about this selling this as integration of care. I think if you really wanted to do that, you would uh, go along the lines of things like the NHS reinstatement, but which I'll come back to at the end. So I think enough from me, um, there's a lot more obviously to say about the NHS, but hopefully we'll cover that at some point. Um, so um, I'll, I think we'll probably start with our first speaker, who is Natalie Sharples, and she's the head of policy and campaigns at Health Poverty uh, Action. Um, 
She's, uh, that Health Poverty Action is an organization working to tackle the social, political, and economic causes of poverty and poor health globally. Natalie sits on the Global Steering Committee of the People's Health Movement, the board of the Western Sahara Campaign UK, and the Labour Party's International Development Task Force. So without further ado, um, I think Natalie is going to tell us about how resources are being diverted uh, to big companies and the role of the Global North in this. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks very much, Yusuf, and hi, everybody. Really great to be here. So I thought I'd talk a bit about some of the history and context of the global public services challenge that we face today, and then talk very briefly about some of the proposed solutions. So as Yusuf has described the neoliberal threats to our NHS and public services, but when you look globally, of course, those problems are amplified. So it sometimes sounds incredible, but still today, half of the world's population do not have access to essential health services. And every year, almost 100 million other people are dragged into extreme poverty to pay for their health care. So that's the equivalent of three people every second. Nearly a third of people in the world are still denied adequate sanitation, and nine million children still denied the right to primary education. Now, it's a basic fact, of course, that in order to provide public services, governments need resources. And the reality that many countries are faced with, they're still struggling to recover from the 80s and 90s, in which neoliberal policies were forced onto them through a process that's very euphemistically termed structural adjustment. So you may know it's essentially um, a process involving international financial institutions like the World Bank, where they lent money to poor countries on the condition that they privatised services, cut regulation, liberalised markets and slashed government spending. So there's a World Bank study of 15 sub-Saharan African countries and it showed that public health expenditure fell by 20% during this period and stagnated afterwards. And the effects of that, of course, were devastating. So citizens of countries who face the greatest pressures of structural adjustment face the starkest declines in life expectancy during that period. And so that echoes what we, of course, now know from our own experience over the last few years that neoliberalism kills. But this isn't just a shameful period in our history. We are still enforcing neoliberal policies on poor countries today. So while structural adjustment no longer happens in principle, we are still exerting pressure, sometimes more subtly. So, for example, things like the World Bank's uh, business, doing business rankings, where they rate countries on how um, open they are to investment, placing subtle pressure on them to deregulate. And we also, of course, do this in a um, number of less subtle ways, for example, through trade agreements, which can force countries to accept reduced regulation. To cite a couple of UK-specific examples, the UK currently, through the Department for International Development, is spending aid money on promoting public-private partnerships. And despite the well-acknowledged disasters of PFI in the UK that Yusuf's touched on, the British government, including again through the Department for International Development, is actively pushing our failed PFI model to other countries. It's actually running seminars targeting poor countries in which they promote our disastrous PFI model as a model for others to emulate. And this is a story that's happening around the world. So rather than focusing on health and people's lives and building policies to support those things that really matter, governments are choosing instead to um, support big businesses. We published some research recently, it's the briefing that you've got on your chairs, um, and that looks at the money that governments are essentially giving away to companies through um, subsidies to things like fossil fuel and agriculture companies, um, and also tax breaks and tax reductions, as well as the money that they're allowing them to take by enabling tax dodging. So that's money that's kind of being diverted from people and public services to big private companies. 
And just in those limited areas that we looked at, the total was over $1 trillion each year. Now, in the context of funding public services, that's a significant sum. So $1 trillion is equivalent to funding the NHS five times over. It could triple the amount of money spent on healthcare for half the world's population. It's seven times the global aid budget, and it's enough to cancel all government debts of impoverished countries. In some other research that we did with Global Justice Now and others last year, we also looked at the financial relationship between countries in sub-Saharan Africa and the rest of the world. So countries in sub-Saharan Africa receive about $162 billion each year in resources. So that's in things like loans, remittances and aid that's going into those countries. Yet each year, over $200 billion is being extracted in things like tax dodging, debt payments and the costs imposed on African countries as a result of climate change. So despite what we're often led to believe, um, that wealthy countries are somehow generously giving money and aid to countries in Africa, in fact the very opposite is true. The continent is a net creditor to the world of over 40 billion each year. One thing I, I wanted to highlight about this is that these big, big global economic inequalities are often being ignored in debates about health and other public services. So of course the way that we run the global economy has an impact on our health and our ability to provide public services and that won't be a surprise to anybody here. But I work in the international development sector and sit through a lot of conversations about health and financing for health systems globally. And those conversations often with aid donors, with international institutions and often even NGOs, what is really surprising is how governments and international institutions are being allowed to get away with ignoring these facts and therefore their responsibilities. So often the focus um, on how to fund health services focus on private investment. We hear a lot of talk about aid, sometimes tax in terms of building countries' capacity to develop their own tax bases, but much, much less about the global inequalities, so tax havens, tax dodging, climate change, and how those impact on public services. So of course it's not a massive surprise that donor governments and international institutions are ignoring this, but the fact that they're being allowed to get away with it by the media, and often by many NGOs as well, um, who are often so focused on aid that they fail to look at the bigger picture. So the reality is that we're giving aid money to support health and public services while ignoring how our policies that we're promoting are depriving countries of far greater resources that could be used to provide those public services. And whether it's domestically or overseas, we have got to stop governments and international institutions getting away with talking and acting as if poverty and poor health are somehow completely divorced from the wider economic conditions that we create. So I thought I'd also briefly just touch on a few of the proposed solutions. And I'm not an expert on, on most of these, um, but I do think they're things that we need to be giving more attention and really brought into to focus. Firstly, we need to keep reiterating the need to redefine priorities and demand that policymakers stop pandering to big business and take what matters, so people's health and lives, as the end goal to which all other policies need to support. And there are some really good examples that we can draw on. So if we look at Ecuador, for example, um, whilst the Correa government might not have been the socialist utopia that many had hoped, one of his policies was to enshrine buen vivir, or the right to a good life, in Ecuador's constitution. So making a clear statement that health and people's lives are the primary goal of government policies. To do that, this requires a shift in how we define and measure progress. So rather than seeing economic growth as an end in itself, we need to demand that governments are looking to alternative measurements that capture people's health and well-being. Um, and there's some good news on this. So in its vision for international development, which the Labour Party published in March this year, 
Labour committed to developing alternative measures of well-being and economic success instead of just GDP growth, and also reducing the importance that GDP growth is given um, as an objective for UK-funded development programmes. I think it's also really important that we ensure that international aid is seen as what it is, a very small amount of resources in comparison with that which is extracted from poor countries. As um, the Indian historian and author Vijay Prashad very, said very eloquently at our reception last night, do not let your aid be a fig leaf for our plunder. So I think we also really, really need to make sure that aid is directed to the people who've been most impoverished as a result of the global economic system, not to big business and not to promote privatisation. Alongside these measures to reprioritise, we also urgently need a range of actions to repair the damage that's been done. So that means addressing the underlying causes of poverty. So creating trade policies that promote rather than undermine public services, stamping out tax dodging, including through the UK's own tax havens, and to stop pushing failed approaches such as PFI or the so-called war on drugs, which is damaging people's lives throughout the world. On that latter point, instead of prohibition of drugs, we need to move towards regulated and taxed markets for cannabis and other drugs and use that revenue to fund public services. And finally, I think we need to radically redistribute wealth, as I'm sure you'd all agree. So that includes things like replacing privatisation with public-public partnerships, which I'm excited that I think we'll hear about shortly. Um, and I also think that we need to look more closely at some of the ideas around things like global social protection. So the idea that states should provide people with a basic level of income and services at the national level is really well accepted. And as we know, like related concepts like universal basic income have got lots of attention at the moment. But we could also do more to look at how such mechanisms could operate globally. So the argument goes that because the causes of poverty operate across borders to undermine health and public services, the only way we can really address this is to set in place mechanisms to redistribute wealth at the global level. The existing ideas around this include for things like a global social protection fund, so a mandatory fund that countries would pay into, and then it would be redistributed out to those where the need is greatest. Thanks. So the amount countries pay in could be based proportionally on their wealth, or as we have argued, we could look at making it proportional to the damage they cause, so seeing it as a kind of reparations or compensation. Um, whilst these ideas are, as far as I know, not particularly well developed, and they would need far more greater thinking and research, um, and certainly not very well accepted, I think they're worth exploring and talking about more because I think given the, the scale of the global injustice, it's time for some pretty radical solutions. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much, um, Natalie. Uh, I think we'll move on now to our second uh, speaker who is uh, Turko uh, Kishimoto. She is an activist researcher at the Transnational Institute, a research and advocacy uh, NGO based in Amsterdam. Um, since 2007, she's engaged with the joint research and advocacy work on uh, remunicipalization. I've had to practice that to make sure I get that tongue twister out. So remunicipalization in water, in the water sector and other public services. And she's edited um, two books. One is Our Public Water Future, The Global Experience with Remunicipalization, uh, which came out in 2015, and Reclaiming Public Services, How City and citizens are turning back privatization, which came out last year. So thank you, Satoko. Thank you, Josef, uh, for introducing. Actually, uh, the, what he uh, told is a bit, you know, the, the, today I don't really focus on that. Uh, sorry for that. <laughs> well, well, 
where the remunicipalization or renationalization of public services is a hugely agenda here. So this is based on the you know, dissatisfaction and the desire of people who, uh, who are affected by badly by the privatization of last decades. So this is something, you know, like uh, the, the, the we, as a collective reaction of citizens and the local authorities. And at this moment in UK, you know, the, the Labour Party uh, try to get, you know, try to take a leadership on that. So this is a very, very new um, resistance and the new, the, the new change we want to see. So, but today I let, let me focus on that uh, the the international cooperation in relate to the UK international policies. I congratulate and really welcome uh, the new lead, uh, leadership of the uh, Labour Party, uh, which released uh, the international uh, vision for international policies, including uh, the public service movement. So, the uh, from day one. Uh, when or if uh, Labour Party get in power, uh, they committed to stop new PFI, public finance initiative. So that's we are, uh, I think we don't have, have I don't have to tell, tell, tell you because you are having hugely in this society, um, in the internationally more called public-private public partnerships. So from day one, they wanted to uh, stop. I mean, they commit to not to have a new one. Of course, we need to think about 700 existing PFI in the UK, which is going to, you know, the, on the, uh, uh, the, the, the burden for taxpayers in the next 25 years, 20 billion pound. That's something uh, we need to talk about. But the point here is we cannot copy or export this failed policy in international, uh, the, in overseas. That's the, that's the, the, we are talking about the co policy coherence. If we want to stop in the UK, that should be also coherent in the international policies. This is the case in, uh, the, in case, the, the, the studying of the, the vision of Labour Party at this moment. This is indeed a commitment. So we have a huge opportunity here as international community, as, U as UK activist community, to really enforce and to keep pushing this direction uh, in the UK, also overseas policies. I really fully want to uh, echo what Natalie says. These international development policies cannot be talked alone. This is so much to do with other international policies, such as trade and tax. So the vision uh, of the, the Labour Party uh, begin with this uh, the, the, this uh, point. So that's that's very welcome. They are they need to, to um, tackle tax justice and trade justice. Without that, we cannot really having a fair and, and the social justice international cooperation. So a little bit of uh, the background of the, the pro promotion of PPP and PFI overseas last three, last decades, uh, that's, that's I want to touch a little bit. The UK is infamous for its aggressive promotion of PFI PPP model. Not only the, the current Tory government, but previous Labour government completely uh, along with or even facilitate or, or consolidate this policy. So the DFID uh, is playing a big role with World Bank and with International Financial Corporation, with UK law firms, advisory uh, consultant companies to, to make adv advice 
in develop developing countries to change to kind of welcome or enable to have the PFI model um, and PPP model in their uh, public services. For instance, UK is the biggest, one of the biggest founder of a public-private infrastructure advisory facility, that's a really terrible name, PPIAF, <laughs> hosted by World Bank. This is facilitating you know, this kind of a scheme by us as a founder. So, um, but I don't blame only UK government. Many, almost all donors, including Netherlands, are um, doing the same thing. It's, it has got kind of a norm, the, the donor countries use international cooperation to expand their market share of in public services by getting contract for corporations on your own country. Don't, people are not shy anymore. This is a really big change. In even in the Netherlands, international cooperation ministry and trade ministry has integrated into one ministry, like five years ago. We are shocked, what is that? This trade agenda and the international cooperation agenda are completely integrated. This is a time we are living. So the, that's why the, the, the change of UK policies as a, one of the biggest donor in the, in the, in the world will shake big Will become became uh, they create big shake in the international financial institutions and aid community. Okay, let's move to a little bit more positive agenda and strategies. So, um, well, my main experience I'm last 15 years working against water privatization and um, the supported kind of local uh, grassroots resistance for, uh, against privatization. From that point of view, people and workers has alternative. So they, they, instead of privatization, how to improve public services? This is the, this is the real actual agenda. So we are pushing labor movement, civil society, long time advocating, the pushing the kind of framework of public, public partnerships. So this is the, the, the what I want to spend a little bit, a uh, few minutes on, uh, on the, to share with you. Public-public partnerships is a largely peer-to-peer -peer capacity development. The public-public partnership is a solidarity-based, very importantly, not non-profit cooperation, equal relationship of cooperation primarily aiming to support and expand beneficiaries' capacity to be able to provide better public services. Fundamental difference from PPP and PFI is that PPP, PFI is taking over the capacity by commercial contract. So this is what we don't want to see. We need to be serious about to how to help the, the, the capacity of public sector in beneficiary countries in the equal basis cooperation, collaboration. Let, let me get a few um, bit concrete experience. Well, public-public partnership is not really radically new. Actually, we know, you know the form from 80s, there are a lot of experiences which is, can be called twins 
or technical assistance. Before the, you know, the neoliberalism came so strong, there are a lot of collaboration between, you know, the, as an international corporation, have a training program and helping the professionals, workers to get training in water sector, for example. So today, still there are, you know, the, even though this kind, uh, the, we are living, you know, market-driven, uh, everything is market uh, war time, but still, for instance, Dutch public water companies are very active to engage, to help their, their partners in, in developing countries to um, um, the create capacity, like finance, uh, investment, uh, the, the all kind of policies and also te uh, technologies. Peer, uh, by the, the partnership, equal partnership. By the way, in, in Netherlands, uh, water companies uh, are all public by law. So this is also helps a lot because public companies don't need to make profit. This is pure the solidarity for the commitment to the world to help universal access. And this also helps a lot to kind of give motivation for workers in the water companies. They, they, in Netherlands, nearly 100% universal water access is there. So the, the work is, can be bored, you know, like maintaining the, the water pipes and things like that. But many, many young people are get inspired to really go to the other countries to, to, to share their knowledge. So that's also the uh, kind of mutual uh, the benefit. The eventually, what we are talking about is the, the commitment to the universal access to public services. So another recent example uh, from Colombia so that's uh, the this bit slightly different sector, which is telecommunication. So the, there is a one municipal company called Mcali, uh, the in the city of Cali. So this is a multi-utility company, energy, water, telecommunication. Then there was a uh, the force to privatize telecommunication part. So the union mobilized the, to resist this plan. So they they uh, demonstrated privatization is not necessary. We can do some, the, the improve the, the services of telecom with some the other ways. So they proposed, not, they, they succeeded to stop privatization by proposing public-public partnership. So actually, now that this partnership is going on, with the help of state, state telecom company in, in Uruguay, which is providing very affordable, uh, the, the actually best services in Latin America, best reliable high-speed internet services to the, 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 uh, uh, to the whole population. So they created the partnership between MCALI and Antel, so involving unions, workers in this partnership. So this is the last my point. The public-public partnership can be organized, can be designed very technical if it, it involves only managers. They are only talking about, about the, the finance often, talking about um, technical improvement in, in case of water, but public services like healthcare, you know, the education, this is, we are, this is about social rights, labor rights, dignity, culture, gender, this is much, much broader than finance and, uh, and technique, uh, uh, the te technical aspects. We are concerning, those concerns need to be addressed. 
So in that, that's why we are um, uh, saying and we are advocating the public-public partnership has to get involved users, citizens, and workers. So that's the that's the 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 way uh, the what international cooperation can can look like. So the international cooperation in the UK but other countries can play strategic role to create capacity of public sector, especially in healthcare and education and other services. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Satoko. Um, next, uh, we have Heidi uh, Chow, who's the Senior Campaigns Manager for Global Justice uh, Now. Um, she leads the Global Justice Now's public campaign to fight for access to medicines in the UK and across the world. Heidi co-authored Pills and Profit, a report that highlights examples of expensive medicines that patients have struggled to access uh, in spite of UK funding into uh, R&D research and development. She's currently co-authoring a new report on alternative health innovation models. Um, Heidi has previously led and won a series of economic justice campaigns, including challenging the UK government's support for failed uh, aid schemes and campaigning for financial market regulation. So, thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Yusuf. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to be talking about how expensive medicines um, has created a crisis in public health, both here in the UK and around the world. Um, our health innovation model is fundamentally broken. It is profit-driven. It is dominated by big pharmaceutical companies. And the pharmaceutical industry is the most profitable industry in the world. Um, and yet, uh, we are facing massive problems from um, the way this model is structured. So I'm going to cover four of those problems. Um, and then I'm going to be looking at some ideas on what a future Labour government could do about it. So one of the biggest public um, health issues globally is about accessing medicines. Um, we're seeing medicine prices soar at unprecedented levels. Um, so some of you um, may remember historically the issue about medicine prices was an issue for low and middle income countries. Um, some of you may, be, uh, may remember or have may read about the um, HIV AIDS crisis of the 1980s, 1990s, um, where millions were condemned to, to die because there was no treatment for it. In 1996, um, a new um, treatment was re released that was effective, that could change having um, HIV to, from a uh, death sentence to actually becoming a manageable disease. Um, however, it's, it was launched with a price tag of 10,000 US dollars per patient per year. And so in spite of there being a treatment available, actually millions of people continued to die um, from HIV and AIDS because um, they just couldn't access th th this kind of price tag. Eventually, the price did come down because of international pressure but still there are still problems today um, around um, accessing HIV treatment. The newest um, HIV treatments are still 18 times more expensive than their original counterparts. Um, but this problem is no longer confined to just low and middle income countries. Actually, the prices, prices are so high that they're impacting even countries like the UK, the US, and countries in the EU as well. For example, in the UK, the NHS drugs bill has risen from 13 billion to 17.4 billion um, between 2011 and 2017. That's an average growth of 5%, um, and that far exceeds what the um, average growth for the NHS budget overall. 
And the NHS is increasingly finding itself having to reject or to ration effective treatment um, because of the prices. So for example, there is a cure available for hepatitis C, but because its price is so expensive, the NHS had to ration this to one in 20 hepatitis C patients. So it's, you know, can you imagine being a doctor and only being able to treat one of your 20 hep C patients and give them the, the cure? Um, and then patients are also having to resort to crowdfund to pay for their own treatments, especially around um, cancer. Uh, we're seeing more crowdfunding campaigns for breast cancer treatments, for example, um, and um, yeah, other advanced cancer treatments are available, which are very expensive. Um, but patient access is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, the second problem about corporate control of medicines is that globally there's a whole raft of diseases that don't even get any investment at all. Um, only 4% of the new drugs developed between 2000 and 2011 uh, were for populations, uh, were for sorry, conditions that only affect people in uh, low and middle income countries. And so um, because there's no financial return, pharmaceutical companies are not investing in those what we call neglected diseases. Um, and then there's also been too little investment in uh, antibiotics. We, we all know we're facing an antimicrobial resistance crisis uh, where humans are becoming resistant to antibiotics. It's massively urgent. Um, and yet, because there's no financial return, because um, antibiotics are increasingly being uh, the medicines of last resort, um, so that market is, is shrinking. And so therefore, again, there's no market incentive for pharmaceutical companies to invest in antibiotics. Um, the third problem is that, um, you know, our pharmaceutical companies would say they charge high prices because they need to recoup their expensive R&D costs. Um, and though we don't deny that R&D is expensive, what this argument doesn't recognise is that actually the public sector pours massive amounts of money into research and development. There's an estimate show that up to two-thirds of uh, global R&D is actually funded by the public sector. And what happens is that the research is done in public institutions or by universities, and then it gets licensed to drug companies who then subsequently charge high prices for those drugs. So in effect, the taxpayer pays twice, first for the R&D and then in high prices. And then the fourth problem is actually there's a massive lack of innovation in the system. So there's a myth that big pharmaceutical companies are innovative, that they are coming up with these life-saving treatments. But actually, a lot of the innovative, riskier, groundbreaking science is being done in the public sector. And um, actually, pharmaceutical companies are increasingly resorting to just tweaking existing drugs, existing compounds, um, and, um, and actually that don't actually deliver any therapeutic benefit over and above what's already available. Um, and so um, they're also um, diverting a lot of their resources away from research and development and instead pouring loads of money um, into um, buying back their own shares because it increases shareholder value. Um, also putting more resources into marketing and also buying up uh, small biotechs. So actually this is really scandalous because um, you know, it's already scandalous that patients are not being able to access effective treatments, but even on economic terms, this system um, is not delivering the uh, kind of innovation that we need as a society, and, it's, and the pharmaceutical companies are not in actually investing into productive activities. And so, um, essentially, we have a profit-driven system where the decisions are not based on public health needs, but, a, a, but about financial returns. Um, so new drugs can be patented, and that means that um, no one else can make or sell or produce that drug for a 20-year period. 
and um, so this essentially creates a monopoly for that drug. So with no competition, you can pretty much charge whatever you want, whatever you think the market can bear. And we, so essentially, this is a corporate controlled system that prioritizes profit over public health and where the risks are socialized, but the rewards are privatized. And so um, what can the future Labour government do about this? Um, so I've been working on a report um, to propose a set of alternatives to the current model um, alongside um, the campaigning organisations Stop AIDS, Just Treatment, and we're working with University College of London as well. And I'm just going to highlight a few of the ideas in that report. Um, the report is published next month, and I've left some briefings on the chairs and my email address is on there. So if you want a copy, um, do email me and I'll get a copy in a post to you. Um, but I'm going to highlight now just very briefly three sort of big ideas from the report about how what we can do to tackle this um, innovation model that, that is not delivering for, uh, for the public. Um, so the first is this idea called delinkage. Um, so one of the biggest problems in this system is that we are rewarding innovation through high prices. Um, and, actually, and, and actually there's no stipulation that that innovation has to deliver any um, therapeutic advantage or that it has to even meet public health needs. So what a Labour government could do would be to create, create systemic change and change that incentive structure. So this idea of delinkage has been championed by civil society groups and health campaigners and access to medicines campaigners around the world. And, it's, and this idea is really building momentum um, in spaces like the World Health Organization. Um, but it's about cutting the link between the cost of R&D and high prices. So instead of paying for innovation through high prices, we pay for innovation upfront through things like grants and subsidies and prizes. Um, this way, it would be an alternative incentive to granting a, a monopoly. Um, and then once that um, technology has been um, created, discovered, um, it can then be licensed to multiple manufacturers who could then drive the price down. Um, and this would also allow the public sector to de determine the priorities for innovation rather than let the market determine the priorities. Um, and this system would require large-scale upfront, upfront funds, um, but what we're proposing is not that you would need additional funds, you just need a reallocation of funds. So instead of pouring loads of money into high overpriced branded drugs, we'd be taking that money and paying for the innovation that we need as a society upfront. The second idea I want to uh, share um, um, is an, uh, around um, setting conditions on public funding. Um, so I've already mentioned the public sector already makes a substantial contribution to R&D and a future Labour government could attach conditions to that public funding and say if a, a drug has benefited from public funding it needs to be accessible and affordable for patients both in the UK and around the world. And this is not that far-fetched of an idea. There's a piece of legislation in the US which allows um, the federal government to intervene when a drug which has benefited from public research um, is not made available to the public um, on reasonable terms. The government can, can, can intervene and um, license that drug to another manufacturer. Um, it's that this right has actually never been exercised in, in, in the US, um, but it exists. Um, and so a future Labour government could attach conditions to insert greater control over public funding um, and ensure that our public investment yields public returns. And then the third idea 
Um, whenever I talk about this subject, the first reaction I get from people is, why can't we set up our own um, state-run pharmaceutical companies? Why can't we make our own drugs? Um, and this is definitely something the Labour Party should explore. Um, and um, But one thing to remember is, is that even if we did have a publicly run um, pharmaceutical company, um, it could potentially still act like a monopoly supplier in itself and still charge high prices, whether it's to patients here or to, in, to, in other countries. And so the proposals that I've talked around in terms of delinkage and attaching conditions, they would actually change the incentive structures to ensure that a public pharmaceutical company would be operating under the right incentives to deliver the medicines that we need at prices that we can afford. Um, in our report, we also advocate for other alternative business models to move away from the corporate shareholder-driven model, which is all about increasing shareholder value, but has nothing to do with public value. And so in our report, we also talk about um, the, uh, the government also um, backing alternative models like cooperatives, B corporations, community interest groups, and other models that have public value um, explicit in terms of their uh, orientation. Okay, thank you, uh, Heidi, um, who's unfortunately going to have to leave in about half an hour because she has to be somewhere else. Um, fine, our final speaker is, um, unfortunately, Jean Ross, who um, is the co-president of National Nurses United, um, is unable to, to be with us today because she's uh, unwell. But um, fortunately, we have Holly Miller, who has uh, stepped into the breach at the last um Second, um, and she's um, National Nurses United's National Director of Public and Community Advocacy. Um, Holly is one of the architects of the nurses, uh, Nursing Medicare for All campaign in the US. Um, and she uh, is not a nurse herself, but works for the union. So thank you very much, uh, Holly. Thank you. And I will say that Jean is feeling much better as she was treated in your national health system, which we are, we're very pleased. Yes, we want one of those. So it's good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I am deeply honored to be part of an event that underscores our cross-border solidarity as we fight back against privatization and commodification of our most basic human rights. I'm extremely proud to work for National Nurses United, the largest union of bedside nurses in the United States. Our nurses uh, see the perilous impacts of on our patients of um, increased privatization, driven by politicians who feel more accountable to the private insurance industry and big pharma and the Goliath for-profit hospital chains than they do to their own people. That's why our advocacy extends beyond the bedside and extremely important to us is that we spend our time in our community, throughout our country, and in our world fighting for healthcare justice. Public services, and especially healthcare, are being cut and privatized around the world, as you all know. Um, in the US, from Medicaid and the Veterans Affairs System in the United States, to the NHS in the UK, this is undoubtedly a direct attack on the people who depend on these services to meet their essential needs. And as such, it's an attack on the fabric of our society itself. Guaranteed healthcare and other public services empower and protect working people. Without the security of these public services, working people do not have the freedom to be fully involved in their communities, in their unions, and in the democratic process. 
In our country, where we will soon be spending 20% of our GDP on for-profit healthcare, where nearly 30 million Americans remain uninsured, and where healthcare costs force one in three adults under the age of 65 to delay or forego care, our establishment politicians mistakenly think that increasing our ability to access, by which in the US they mean purchase, health insurance, not care, is the solution. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, has proven that when the profit imperative remains intact, health care costs skyrocket. Our union and its affiliates have been working for decades to bring a more humane health care system to our own country, based on patient need, not on private pain and profit. One more like the NHS, and we hope it remains free for all forever. <laughs> Grounded in social justice unionism, we are guided by the beliefs that healthcare is a fundamental human right and that all of our patients deserve a single standard of high quality care, regardless of their political affiliation, race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, or citizenship status. Establishing Medicare for all, guaranteeing healthcare to all people living in the US would realize that vision. Nurses are leading a movement that builds on these values of universality, equity, and inclusivity, brings these values to the surface, and organizes around them. We're having the moral conversation in our units, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities, in the media, in our state and federal legislators, and on the streets, for anyone who will listen. While we believe Medicare for All is a major step, toward fixing our current healthcare crisis, we are also well aware that there are economic policies and industry trends that undermine the ability of nurses around the world to take care of their patients, even in a single payer system. What's happening right now in the NHS is a prime example of the lethal austerity to privatization formula. A public system is starved, as Yusuf said earlier, by austerity measures, which enables the private sector to be the knight in shining armor who comes in to save the starving system from itself. Uh, the Hospital Corporation of America, HCA, already operates several hospitals in the UK. The relationship is a deeply parasitical one, in which HCA delivers substandard health services and siphons off the British taxpayer money to add to its billions in profits, 2.2 billion in 2017. Unsurprisingly, this is all part of a vicious pattern, as HCA was just fined more than $2 billion for defrauding our Medicare and Medicaid system in the US. We all need to launch a coordinated campaign across national boundaries to block the efforts of nefarious actors like HCA, which further entrench the privatization of our health services. In the United States, we call these economic policies and industry trends healthcare restructuring. Healthcare restructuring refers to a set of tactics designed to make healthcare systems adapt to the demands of a capitalist market. One of the areas we see this play out is through technological restructuring. The health information technology sector with its electronic health records, telemedicine apps for your phones, and wearable sensors that track individual health, um, it's poised to be the next major profit trend in healthcare, in the healthcare industry. Uh, the health information technology market was projected to be worth over $20 billion in the United States this past year. And of course, all of these technologies collect uh, big data, which companies then turn around and sell to advertisers, corporations, insurers, and credit rating agencies. 
Our for-profit healthcare industry gushes that these technologies will help us diagnose illnesses sooner, calculate better treatment plans, coordinate care among providers, and above all else, cut costs. But we're not fooled. We know that the main goal here is to detach the delivery of care from a particular place or from any place at all, actually. These, technological, these technologies dismantle traditional direct patient care settings like the hospital itself and reincarnate care in cheaper retail clinics like our Walmart and your Tesco's. In the name of promoting patient-centered care and consumer convenience, healthcare corporations want to relocate nurses and patients to the lowest cost site of care possible. This is how the future of nursing looks according to a study from the National Academy of Medicine, and I'm actually gonna read this as a quote. It is not clear how much of nursing care might be independent of physical location when health information technology is fully implemented, but it will likely be a significant subset of care, possibly in the range of 15 to 35% of what nurses do today. That is, for this proportion of care, nurses need not be in the same locale or even in the same nation as their patients. Exactly. <laughs> as new technologies impact the hospital and other settings for nursing services, this phenomenon may increase. So our new normal replaces face-to-face -face visits with emails and virtual uh, video-based visits. In fact, um, the Kaiser Permanente system, which is the insurance company that I have in the United States, there's a sign on the facility when you walk in that actually tells you that if you are willing to have a phone consultation, you don't have to pay your copay. So we're actually already encouraging and pushing our patients to stay home and make phone calls rather than see, um, see their nurses. In, pardon me. In fact, according to the National Academy of Medicine's forecast, and again, this is another quote, uh, the hospital of the future is not a place at all, but rather a collection of inpatient and outpatient facilities, as well as patient homes, interconnected through a shared information technology infrastructure. Healing will occur at home. The home is completely unregulated, and the job of providing care is then, of course, passed off on patients' families, right, or friends, or maybe even the patients themselves in the worst position to take care of themselves. To be sure, this is the ultimate endgame of healthcare restructuring, charging our patients a fee to care for themselves in their own homes. <laughs> the destruction and displacement of traditional sites of care not only lowers the cost of labor, it also decreases the power of labor, nurses in particular. Virtual clinics means that we are divided, displaced, and dispersed into increasingly isolated corners of a completely virtual shop floor. Virtual clinics I'm sorry, at the root of the economic restructuring of every sector is a long-term strategy to divide and conquer the working class itself. Single-payer systems in our sister countries are by no means immune. What's happening in the NHS is also happening in the Canadian healthcare system, where the aim is not to boost profits, but to balance ever-constricting budgets. Private corporations are now moving in to supposedly to save failing healthcare systems. But the parts of the systems that appear inefficient and poorly managed only seem so because, again, they've been deliberately starved of government funds by politicians. 
Um, nurses in Norway are forced to bear the brunt of austerity measures as they are subjected to the introduction of lean labor strategies such as total quality management, Six Sigma, and Kaizen. As if the value of a nurse sitting with a patient dying from metastatic breast cancer and comforting her family can be captured and quantified by a stopwatch. In Australia, Spain, and Taiwan, nurses are currently fighting to secure safe staffing levels. Until we stop privatization, all of our healthcare systems in the end will be more or less determined by the market. Our struggle against the many faces of economic neoliberalism, most especially the austerity to privatization formula, is our final frontier. We must understand we face a common enemy. The forces trying to prevent Medicare for all in the United States are the same forces that want to destroy the NHS. The commitment of National Nurses United to this fight is clear. We've joined forces with nursing unions and public sector unions around the world through Global Nurses United and its affiliation with Public Services International to begin fighting this common enemy in a more coordinated, intentional, and strategic fashion. Okay, so um, thank you very much, Holly. And um, I think that's probably a, a first that not a single speaker has overrun, apart probably from myself at the start. And I'll try <laughs> not to at the end. Um, so I'm going to, I've got the uh, unenviable task of trying to uh, sum up. And I've got so many notes here, I think enough food for thought for a few uh, weeks. Um, but. Um, let me try and find my original notes, hopefully. Um, so um, I think we've, we've heard from our panel about the struggle, obviously, for global uh, universal healthcare, uh, with a battle pitched at various focal points and front lines uh, between powerful corporate and financial interests uh, seeking to privatize, extract wealth, and maximize profit from public services and the commons, uh, up against a grassroots, bottom-up uh, struggle, which is, um, I think, building with each day, um, seeking to take those public services back into uh, public ownership. Um, and I think there are clearly two aspects which are problems and solutions. Increasingly, the consensus uh, on the left is that the problems are privatization, deregulation, financialization, as we've heard, um, particularly around uh, from Natalie Illicit. Uh, financial uh, transfers of wealth from uh, from the global south, um, enabled really by um, the, the city of London, particularly Wall Street. Um, uh, so the, the kind of big global financial centres, of course the city of London is, is the biggest financial centre in the world. Uh, we often hear, I think, from governments kind of putting their hands up and saying, well, our government particularly, there's nothing we can do. But actually, um, the, the kind of uh, concentric rings of offshore tax havens emanate from the city of London and uh, the Cayman Islands for example which uh, is in the Caribbean obviously is um, is bigger I think five times or something the size of um, Frankfurt which is the uh, one of if not the biggest centers in Europe of course after after the city of London so I think it tells us quite a lot about policies that can be reversed um, and uh, so neoliberal, really turbocharged capitalism. And I think we obviously need to continue to increase awareness of those issues, spread the word. Um, but neoliberalism seems to be, in some ways, obviously in its death throes. Um, but the problem is that I think that breaks down in one of two ways, either towards a kind of hard right authoritarianism uh, or towards hopefully a progressive vision of society that works in the interests of people. And the solutions will come in all shapes and sizes, as we've already heard. Um, we've got uh, 
here in the UK, the theoretical and legislative basis for, as a launchpad, for example, uh, for with regards to the NHS, something like the NHS reinstatement bill co-written by uh, Professor Alison Pollock and uh, the barrister Peter Roderick, which would aim to repeal the Health and Social Care Act, remove the market, reverse privatisation, uh, and try to deal with the, the thorny question of PFI that Satoko um, uh, talked about, which is, is going to be unpacking that is going to be very difficult, and already we're seeing uh, those uh, interests, corporate interests involved in PFI, beginning to to think about how they would uh, push back against a Corbyn government. Um, and as uh, pioneering as the NHS was in the 20th century, I think we, uh, as, as we've already heard today, we need to be thinking about far more radical ideas. Heidi has talked about um, public ownership of pharmaceuticals, something that's hardly ever discussed in the mainstream, um, and therefore um, ensuring that life-saving and life uh, and all life-enhancing drugs, medicines, treatments um, are publicly owned and provided rather than uh, simply corporate profiteering uh, from the vulnerability of the sick uh, and the denial of care for billions across the world, uh, especially when the funding, research and development, as Heidi uh, elaborated on, is, is often carried out by state or public bodies, such as public hospitals, universities, um, and elsewhere, for example, in the US, uh, the National Institutes of Health. Um, and speaking from my point of view, particularly as a doctor, but also as a patient whose life has been saved by the NHS, I think it's, it's um, uh, you know, just appalling and shocking to, to obviously be aware of, of uh, what Heidi talked about with regards to, of course, HIV, AIDS and hepatitis C and all kinds of other uh, illnesses. Now, I think that the progressive, optimistic 20, 21st uh, century vision for health and social care, we need to really interrogate what public ownership means. I think simply renationalization or state control isn't sufficient. The state isn't a neutral player. It's absolutely critical to the neoliberal globalization order. I think we need to be talking about truly public democratic ownership, meaning that in healthcare, that healthcare professionals, patients, communities uh, should really run their health and social care services. Um, and the most daunting task is going to be how you enact, of course, theory into praxis, how the organic translation of these ideas um, translates into concrete reality. And that means struggling uh, against and defeating very powerful uh, interests. Um, and I think clearly uh, Corbyn-led or any progressive government will be up against it from day one, against uh, the City of London and other vested interests. And what is needed isn't just enlightened top-down leadership, as we've seen with uh, Syriza, for example, in Greece. It has to be combined with a bottom-up uh, mass movement. So here we need the local NHS campaigns to coalesce into national campaign. That is seems to be happening in, in various guises. But we need also generalisation, so linking up with other public sector workers and trade unions into that broad-based bottom-up grassroots movement. And of course, some of this is already happening. And um, because we are, we are up against globalisation, well, globalised neoliberalism, globalised corporate and financial power, that struggle needs to be international. Um, in scope, national struggles alone, uh, perhaps as we've seen in Greece, are likely to be defeated for the foreseeable future. And those national struggles, I think, need to unite into an international progressive alliance, which is something that Bernie Sanders has written about recently. Um, so an international alliance of solidarity, uniting people across the world. And I think ultimately, if we're talking about the NHS or other countries, health and social care 
uh, taking it back into public ownership can't happen in isolation. It needs to be part of a, a progressive vision, a manifesto that would encompass a green economy, massive public investment and spending, uh, and public democratic control of uh, workplaces and society. Um, and I think as, as we've have heard from our panel, um, this isn't just about the design of healthcare systems or the encroaching threat of digital healthcare uh, enabling cuts, closures and privatisation. Um, it's also about population health, it's about the practice of medicine and um, uh, you know, a word that comes to mind is the, the medical industrial complex when we think of the, the sugar conspiracy, opioid, the opioid epidemic, toxic medical devices, um, carcinogenic products and so on and so forth. Not a week seems to be, go by without some story connected with, um, with one of those aspects. So I'll leave it there and um, I will try and kick off proceedings for the 30-minute discussion um, with the first question for our panel, if I can just find it. <laughs> Too many sheets of paper. So... Um, Nope, can't find it. Ah, oh, there it is. So, um, what can Labour do to support public services across borders? So, if each um, speaker could, could maybe take a, a couple of minutes to try and answer that. Shall we go in the same order? So, Natalie? Sure. Thank you. Well, I think um, Labour's in a really interesting um, position at the moment. As I mentioned earlier, um, back in March, Kate O'Samor, um, the Shadow Secretary of State for International Development, set out Labour's um, vision for international development. And as I mentioned in it, she committed to end um, support for PPPs overseas um, and also to champion instead the global movement for public services. And over the summer, she ran a consultation, um, sort of map out, try and find out what that should, should look like. And that's going to inform a, a paper that Labour are going to publish later on in the year. So I'm really kind of excited about and hopeful about what that's going to look like. Um, I think key things, as we've heard, would be obviously, rather than exporting failed PFI, um, a much better export would be to support um, countries who want to learn from the experiences of the NHS. Um, so to really promote and champion primary health care. Um, Amit Sengupta, who's one of the um, leaders of the People's Health Movement based in India, he made this point really well um, in the evidence that he gave to the Labour Party's consultation on international development. So he, um, he gave evidence via video and he said that um, one of the key points for him was that Labour really needs to champion um, the NHS domestically. And he said, whatever you do, you know, do not let the NHS go. Um, making the point that it's not just, its destruction doesn't just hurt people in the UK, but really as a symbol of comprehensive tax-funded primary health care, the NHS really provides inspiration and a vision for people all over the world who are fighting for their own rights to access health care. Um, so it's not just important for us, it's really important for people everywhere. Um, I'd also say that I think on that point, I think they could really, it's really important that they need to be linking the domestic and the international more. And I think there are some really interesting steps in that direction. But I'd, I'd really like to see, rather than international development sitting kind of in a separate part at the back of the manifesto, along with foreign and defence policy, to see it more in a comprehensive way and to set out a really kind of clear and compelling vision for um, an alternative to neoliberalism, both domestically and internationally, and kind of making those links, I think it's really important. I think I'll leave it there. Thanks. Um, yeah, no, so I've got to leave at quarter past, um, so that's why I'm just going next and sort of jumping the queue a little bit. Um, so, yes, I think um, 
Uh, if we need to, we, I guess we need to start thinking, when we talk about public services, we often think about healthcare as the, sort of the public service, but we also need to start thinking about how medicines are also part of that public service. Um, and actually access to um, effective and essential treatment is fundamental to a government's obligation to deliver right to health for its citizens. Um, so, when we see, so, so when we see it in this light, actually, we, 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 certainly in the NHS context, what we have is a public health care system, but privatised med medicines. Um, and so, you know, medicines are not a luxury. They're an essential for anyone who's been ill or who's seriously ill. Medicines are not a luxury. Um, and so when we see it in this, from this perspective, it changes the kind of solutions that we want to advocate. So instead of, so at the moment, for example, the current government are, their way of dealing with this is to slap fines on pharmaceutical companies when they kind of charge extortionate amounts to, uh, of money um, or to have sort of, you know, retrospective actions. But actually... We actually need to change the whole way we view uh, medicines and medicines production, um, and so that involves, you know, a future Labour government taking a much more active role um, in uh, defining R&D priorities, um, as well as taking a greater role um, to exert public control over medicines, um, so that they start taking up some of these ideas, which are not just our ideas as an organisation, but actually their ideas shared um, across the world by different um, um, civil society organisations, patient groups, um, and medicine activists um, and and, I, and essentially I think the ideas I've talked about today around um, publicly owned pharmaceutical companies this idea of delinkage this idea of conditions actually they're all essentially challenging the entren entrenched um, interests and power of the pharmaceutical industry which um, uh, which I think is a massive massive challenge um, you are taking on a very powerful who have massive of in, masses of influence um, in Whitehall, um, massive revolving door between Department of Health, for example, and pharmaceutical companies. Um, we've also so we've, we've so we've been arguing on it certainly um, uh, from a, a kind of a moral and a rights point of view around access to medicines. But we also want to start talking about actually some of the economic arguments that actually this economically doesn't actually make sense for us as a country to buy to buy such overpriced extortionate medicines. It doesn't make sense. Um, economically, um, it doesn't make sense for an NHS that is facing um, budget constraints. Um um, because actually we have got a very inefficient, unproductive model of innovation. Um, so actually this is an argument that we're taking up both with Department of Health but also with the Department of Business because essentially um, one of the biggest um, uh, issues that we're going to come across trying to push this agenda is that the um, pharmaceutical industry um, in the light of Brexit would be saying actually this is a time when you shouldn't be messing around with us, you want us to stay in this country and, and keep the jobs. Actually we uh, we want to come back and say actually but you're not actually doing um, economically productive activities, um, you're merely extracting profit rents from our society and our economy. So I think there's kind of different lines of how we can um, address this in terms of arguing the case uh, for more socialised and publicly controlled medicines. Well, the really, really the first thing uh, need to happen or the, the Labour Party can do is to defund. Defund in the, the privatization facilitating, uh, you know, the mechanism and uh, such a, such a the scheme. That should be not difficult. So then uh, the second thing uh, they, they can do is then, then what? 
what what the, the you know UK international aid money to, uh, where should to go. So this is a very careful design needed. Oh, sorry. First, uh, uh, second, that is ongoing PPP project in the health sector education. By the way, health sector education is a huge target after water and energy. So the, that's need to be reviewed because many projects are going on in the world has to be critically reviewed and possibly stopped. So that's the UK uh, government can act, play an active role. But then uh, coming to the design to next future is, you, you know, we need more creativity and commitment from community, from patients, communities, and workers, and, and the sector professionals. So this is really, really important to, you know, this is not only about money, this is who are providing services, is the people, you know, the nurses and sector professionals, they need a capacity, then they need a space, and they need to work with communities. So that's why I'm talking about public-private partnership comes in. So we need to uh, have a, a good space to develop such, uh, the, the, uh, the together with users and patients. So another the thing I see very interesting is the, the in, in the proposal of Labour Party is a creation of social justice fund. So I don't, we don't know precisely how it looked like, but it looks like for me, you know, this kind of fund, the UK money can directly support or fund the civil society, grassroots, the, the community mobilizing to be, be able to engage in the policy proposals, how the government, local and national government, to provide public services and healthcare. This role is critically important. The, the, and many civil society group and community group are really developing such concrete proposals. So this uh, has to be connected with the, the policies in, the, in, the, in the, the, the countries, in the local and national level. At this moment, there are really little channels in between the policy level and, and users and patients and communities. So that needs to be linked the, the, by the, the maybe social justice fund can play such a role. I could not possibly agree more with Satoka. I could not possibly agree more in terms of the healthcare workers and working with them directly. Um, I would like to make one suggestion in the negative, which is that you all don't try to work with our Democratic Party. They are not figuring a way out of this situation, um, and I would discourage that strongly. But the, your Labor Party has a relationship with your trade unions that our Democratic Party does not have um, in the US with our labor movement. Um, our, yeah, I'll just leave it at that, actually. <laughs> but the workers, the actual workers within those trade union movements are the ones who are on the front lines of what's happening in terms of privatization in your system and in terms of the pure for-profit um, care in ours. I've met a number of nurses now here in your country who have, they are alarmed. They are very alarmed about what's going on in your system, and they are the best voices possible to put forward in terms of the Labour Party to, to actually amplify what's the crisis that you all are walking into and then I would suggest working with us <laughs> as well in terms of the US because you do, you do not want to become us and that's the, that's the path you're on. To, have, to know that HCA and Kaiser Permanente are operating here within your, that is dangerous. <laughs> And so I think those, I think the, the workers who are working directly with their patients, and I agree there are a lot of great um, civil organizations who are doing work as well, I think that's the direction. 
Thank you very much. Um, I think we've uh, overrun few, by a few minutes, so um, I think we're going to, yeah, let's open it up. So um, should we take the questions in threes and then we can... We can uh, so questions are obviously points, um, but please try and keep them brief, no kind of mini-speeches, and there'll be a roving mic. So. Um, yeah, sorry, good point. I haven't uh, got much experience with chairing, so yeah, should we take this gentleman and then the lady at the back and um, this gentleman here? I want to raise the issue of, um, I used to work for the Medical Research Council, which funds most of, uh, a lot of fundamental research in this country. Its laboratory at Cambridge has 15 Nobel Prizes and basically created molecular biology. Um, I want to use an illustration of one of the difficulties on the issue of patenting uh, at Cambridge, an uh, Argentinian scientist with his German postdoc discovered monoclonal antibodies, which are a major step forward in medicine. But the Medical Research Council uh, had a policy of not patenting that, right? What happened was, of course, the patents for monoclonal antibodies are owned now by Big Pharma in the United States, and they have made billions upon billions from these patents which were funded by the um, Medical Research Council in this country. The scientist who discovered it, Cesar Milstein, who's Argentinian, because it's German, so Cambridge attracts all these people from all around the world. Uh, he was asked on television, would the private sector, why didn't they, the private sector fund your research since they're profiting from it? He said they told me it was a load of rubbish, it was a load of nonsense, it was too green, blue sky or something like that. So, of course, the Medical Research Council funded it. Where all the profits that could have come back into the public domain were, were allowed to be taken by big pharma, mainly in the States. My, I'm a scientist and, work, and I used to work for the Medical Research Council. My idea would be that all inventions made in the public domain, funded by, should go into a publicly owned patent fund. This could be global. It doesn't have to be just in Britain. And that money is then fed back into the public sector and, and taken out of the, uh, out of the hands of the private sector. So all, all science, but particularly medical science, should be, in my view, and I'd like to hear the opinions of that. You can't just ignore the patenting system. You can't say it's all a little rubbish, because they will take the money off you. And, that, and you have to think about that. Hi, my name's Teresa. Thank you for the contributions from the panel. I'm a member of Keep Our NHS Public, National and Local, and I think everybody in this room should be a member of Keep Our NHS Public and Health Campaigns Together. The only PFI you should um, support is the Public Financial Initiative, which is funded by the public, is owned by the public, and cared for by the public. And I just wanted to touch on global health, because global health should be everybody's concern. We are at this moment exporting disease and importing disease because nobody is checked when they come through passport control or come off a cruise ship or what have you. So you don't know what's coming in and what's going out. And something that concerned me a few weeks ago, I heard that the sexual health clinics in this country, because they haven't got the staff and the funding, are turning people away who are 
presenting with symptoms. So from this side, if you have a sexually transmitted infection and you can't get an appointment and you may have one in a few weeks, if you're going on holiday to wherever, you will probably go on that holiday because you know when you come back you will be checked and maybe a bit more frivolous with your behaviour because you have that security. If you're taking that to a third world country where their healthcare is dire and their sexual healthcare is non-existent, that is detrimental. And I just wanted to also mention that big farmer experiment, predominantly in Africa and India, on children testing their products and further detrimentalising the health of people in the third world because black lives don't really matter and black lives should matter. So it's the responsibility of everybody in this room to make sure that our global health is good. And for PFI, I think if my stats serve me well, we have £200 billion worth of PFI and we've got to pay £500 billion worth back. Imagine what that money would look like sitting in our National Health Service right now. Tony, Tony Blair should be in The Hague for war crimes and crimes against the NHS. He should be in The Hague for war crimes and crimes against the NHS because he brought Simon Stevens here. He believes in a private healthcare system and he doesn't care about our national health. When we talk about a global health system, in my view, there's a very critical element missing today. I'm talking about a system of medicine which is not controlled by the multinationals or the big pharma. And that is the traditional medical systems from India, Africa, Latin America, China, right? Uh, in Cuba, for instance, doctors in modern medicine have the option to study traditional medicine as well. So they can practice both at the same time. In India, in the state of Kerala, where there's a socialist government, there's a Ayurvedic health centers all over the place, apart from hospitals. True enough, one of the criticisms of the traditional medicine is that it's not systemized. It's not, uh, there's no evidence-based. But since it's ancient medicine, surely research and development can concentrate on that. In Kerala, some of the Ayurvedic hospitals have their own laboratories, their own scientists. So over a period of time, it can be systemized. The other beauty of it is that it's a, it becomes a two-way process. Not only the, the best practice from the national health can be imparted to the uh, poorer countries. But Indian systems can be brought here to enrich the medical profession in, in Europe as well. Thank you. So um, three questions there. Um, we'll probably have one more uh, round, I think, before we get thrown out. But who would like to, um, to, to answer some of those questions? I think the first question was on um, uh, patents, um, drug and innovation 
patenting. Um, sadly, we've lost Heidi, who would have probably been the right person to answer that. Second question was was from the lady at the back about publicly uh, public funding, uh, provision, and ownership of healthcare, and uh, obviously she talked about sexual health. And then the third third question um, was about. Uh, well, from this gentleman, global universal healthcare alternative models and alternative medicines. So, who would like to have a go with some of that? If anyone. Yeah. Bits of it, yeah. Thank you. Um, I don't think I'll, I'll answer the patent one because I don't think I'm very well qualified to do that one. But um, on the um, keep our NHS public, I mean, yes, absolutely, totally agree. And I think um, your point about kind of us exporting and importing diseases is really important. There is a slight, um, a slightly dubious kind of health security agenda, which I think we need to be slightly careful about because it's sort of been co-opted a slightly um, dubious narrative around we need to spend aid money on preventing disease so it doesn't kind of come over here, that sort of thing. But I think it's more the narrative that's being co-opted rather than anything else. I totally agree it's, a, it's an issue. Um, on regard to the traditional medicines, um, I mean, Health Poverty Action, actually, we work in a number of different countries, working with sort of local and national authorities to strengthen health systems. And we work primarily with um, indigenous peoples or other cultural and ethnic minorities. And so it's not just kind of traditional medicine that we see as, as an issue, but also kind of traditional cultural practices that often aren't um, accommodated in mainstream healthcare. So one of the things that we do is try to work to make um, health systems more accessible to marginalised groups by sort of incorporating their practices. So I agree that that's certainly something um, that's, that's very important because it's a, really, a real barrier to people accessing healthcare if it doesn't kind of meet their, their cultural needs. Fine. Sure, we'll move on to the next round. So who... Okay, so um, this lady here, and then anyone else, and then Nicholas, and yeah. Um, my name is Maxine, and I'm a microbiologist. Um, I used to work for the NHS, but we got privatised, um, so I left my workplace. But um, the question I have to ask is about the role of generics. Um, we know that they're cheaper, um, especially in India. I think they produce a lot of uh, generic uh, pharmaceuticals. And how can that help the NHS to save money? We've just seen a, a case one recently whereby um, a trust has been, al oh, I, I think it's either a trust or uh, one of the hospitals is allowed to use a cheaper form of medicine and the farmers trying to fight, fight back against that. Thank you. Sorry, you said... Um, yeah, sorry, Nicholas. Sorry. <coughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, yeah, I want to thank everybody. Uh, and uh, some points about the role of the fight for the NHS within within the uh, global context. Just, that, you know, that, that point about how it's important for us to fight for it here that as a gift, you know, what we can do for, for the global context. That was Bevan who said that to lead by example, not word for word, but sounds a bit colonial, but that. Um, and it's moved on from that from to exporting. Britain's become an exporter of privatisation, as we talked about PFI, but also of, of other types of privatisation. And that's moved on to exporting privatisation as the NHS. So David Cameron talked about how he wanted the NHS to be a fantastic business for Britain, exporting, and you have so-called NHS services in the Middle East. Um, but when I started taking notes was uh, when Holly was speaking um, and not from the beginning, just all the things that you were talking about from the US which are happening here, the same things. You talked about hospital, cha hospital chains. <clears throat> that's in the Dalton Review. That's being, that's a, that's being implemented. Uh, you talked about apps uh, replacing uh, clinical staff and being used, as a, uh, or being used as a pretext for getting rid of infrastructure. 
that's exactly what's happening here. It's called the Naylor Review, and it's called um, it, oh, different parts of the five-year forward view of Simon Stevens' plan. Um, I'll just note a few more. Uh, you, I think you can talked about HCA being taken to court. They're being taken to court in the UK. Uh, it, it's, it's the first thing when you walk into Guy's Hospital is the HCA stand there. And um, they were at the um, UCH hospital from since 2006, they have a floor of it. Um, so it's not that new. Um, sorry, I'm just gonna run through it quick. GP at hand, you might have heard of it. This, this is the same stuff. It's exactly the same agenda you're facing, we're facing here. So uh, Labour voted last year to oppose that. It's been completely ignored in the MPF report. Someone is recalling it uh, tomorrow and saying, Labour voted to oppose it. We want that to be recognized because uh, it's, um, Jonathan Asher is totally silent on that. He says it's just underfunding. It isn't. So please vote if you're a delegate to support that. Um, I just wondered about the role of cooperatives, uh, local cooperatives. I accept that um, keeping the NHS public is the priority, but if there's any comments on that. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So um, uh, would anyone like to... to um come back on that so the first question was on um generics again we've lost Heidi so um but yeah it's only absolutely fundamental isn't it the the drug bill for the NHS and elsewhere um the second question on the um uh, NHS struggle from Nicholas leading by example and the exporting of privatization um, and all kinds of other aspects in terms of restructuring of the NHS redesign of the workforce sell off of land and estates and then finally um the last question uh, was about cooperatives. So. I can speak to Nicholas's point. Yeah, so to Nicholas's point about um, the healthcare restructuring and the technological things that are coming in, I think what we need to understand, so in, we can be very clear with you, this is all about keeping cost down and profit high. That's what all of these things are for. There's no doubt. Um, but I think there's this very insidious piece to it that's cultural as well, which is that it's training a new generation of individuals to see their their right to health care in a different way, right? It's We're training kids to understand that they can talk to their doctor by Skype, or they can talk to their doctor on the phone, or that your app is gonna tell you when it's time to take your insulin, and that's just not healthcare, right? And so we're, I think part of the, the, health, the technological pieces are that, yes, technology continues to improve and change, and we can use it in lots of great ways in order to improve healthcare, but to the extent that culturally, it's training us to not access direct patient care, that's a real problem, and I think that's you know just a trick of capitalism, right? It's marketing. Thank you. Um, anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just a very brief uh, thing, uh, the kind of reality we are having. Well, like uh, the stopping, you know, PFI, PPP export, export, uh, export is, is, is a great thing. However, the reality, you know, in the international uh, the community, you know, we have so many tools, institutions, and financial framework to do that PFI overseas. But if we do something differently, there is no institutions. There is no framework. So this is a reality. So we need to really, we have a huge debt, you know, to do what need to start working on in how, you know, the, the value matters here. Social justice matters. 
So then, you know, the, the, we, our kind of international policies need to be built on that kind of values, in inclusion and social justice. So this is a huge, quite homework in the international community to because this doesn't really exist. And also, the, gov uh, the government, many you know, institutions intentionally defund the, this kind of, uh, you know, the, the not to make it happen. So that's what we have to uh, uh, be serious about. Thank you very much. Um, I think uh, one final point is just on cooperatives. Of course, Bevan, uh, when when he um, uh, helped to 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 kind of um, uh, well institute the NHS. Of course, it was a bottom-up struggle. But the original model was, of course, in the Welsh uh, in in Wales in the Welsh mining villages in Tredegar, and I think he. He did say that he was going to tredegarize uh, Britain in terms of healthcare. So um, I think, yeah, it's absolutely worth remembering that cooperatives is, is the uh, kind of original uh, inspiration for the NHS. So um, we'll leave it there. Unfortunately, we could go on for a few more hours. Uh, thank you to our, our fantastic panel. Thank you to everyone for coming. And um, the, just a quick thing to say that the event's only made possible by uh, huge amounts of work from a team of tireless volunteers, so thank you to them. And um, uh, we don't accept corporate sponsorship and we're committed to keeping events affordable, so making uh, the World Transform sustainable relies on your goodwill, so please, uh, if you want to ensure it keeps happening each year, please uh, join the supporters network uh, at donorbox.org uh, uh, hyphen the, uh, sorry, forward slash the hyphen world hyphen transformed, and uh, you'll get regular, uh, you'll get free tickets each year to the festival, access to exclusive events, discounts, and helping to keep it uh, possible as a regular donor. So thank you very much. Thanks, Yusuf. I have just one update and correction, actually, on the 1 p.m. sessions. Um, the program is incorrect, um, but it's been corrected on the website and the app, so check that if you're not sure. But the Black E-Theatre um, session at 1 p.m. is Labour for Decriminalisation, and the Hinterlands Theatre is the venue for taking on the tech giants. So Hinterlands Theatre taking on the tech giants and decrim uh, in the Black E-Theatre. Thank you. <laughs>